This morning, scripture is from the book of Ephesians, chapter 5, verses 21 through 33. Hear now the word of the Lord. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word, and we ask now that you would open it to us. Lord Jesus, you are the living word, and we ask that we would hear your voice this morning. Lord, may we humble ourselves before you. We pray for the churches surrounding us, and this morning we just lift them up in general. We thank you for their presence here. We thank you for their partnership in the gospel. We thank you for the good work you're doing in them and through them in this community, and we pray that that would continue. Father, we thank you that we can gather before you now And we ask that you would glorify no one but Jesus, our Savior. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Later in life, Winston Churchill attended a formal banquet in London at which the dignitaries at that banquet were asked this question, if you could not be who you are, who would you like to be? Now, everyone was very curious, and it was quite interesting as they went around the table and all these dignitaries answered if they couldn't be who they were, who would they like to be? And, of course, Churchill was last, and everyone was quite fascinated to see what he was going to say. And so Churchill, when it came to his turn, he stood up and he said, if I could not be who I am, I would most like to be, and he paused and he took his wife's hand, Clementine, who was sitting next to him, and he said, Lady Churchill's second husband. Isn't that a great answer? You know, of course, he made some points that night with Clementine, but that's just one little example. I'm still in the process of reading a long three-part biography of Churchill. He and his wife had a fantastic marriage, and what he said in that answer was very reflective of their relationship and, and something that he genuinely meant, and I think it applies to everyone who has a good marriage. Now, this morning, our passage is wonderful, and yet the exposition of it must be done carefully because cultural interpretations and caricatures abound, and sadly, there's been actually abuse related to some interpretations of this, of this passage. You see, God's Word in the hands of a religious fool can do immense harm. 
some want to say that this text is passé. It's outdated. It is not. Some men want to use it to domineer over their wives. You cannot. So please, do not dismiss this text today because of how some people misinterpret it or misuse it. Many problems in Christian marriages come from an ignorance of or a total disregard for the Bible's teachings on the roles of men and women in marriage. So here's what I'm asking you to do with me. Lay aside your preconceived notions of it. Repent of the cultural baggage you may want to import into it. Please put down your weapons, friends. Relax and give God's Word a chance. If you do, I am quite confident that this morning I will be able to offend every single one of you. (laughs) All joking aside, as we come to this passage, we need to come to this text in humility and in submission. You see, submission's all over the place in the Bible. We submit our lives to Christ. We submit our lives to His Word And this morning's passage is not just about marriage. It actually is a call to discipleship for all Christians. God's Word will challenge our cultural assumptions, and I think it will probably challenge us too. And also, this morning, if you're single, because either you've never been married, or maybe you're single because of divorce, or because of being widowed, Don't check out, because I do firmly believe there's much in this passage that speaks to you too. Now, sometimes pastors will take two to four weeks unpacking this passage and cover it in great detail. I'm not doing that. We're having one time on it this morning, so it'll be more high level, but I'm hoping to do it in such a way that you can dig into it on your own. And what I want to begin with is not what everyone wants me to begin with which is the roles of husband and wife in marriage, what I want to begin with are things that this passage teaches that often get overlooked. We skirt right past them, and so I want to start there. And the first thing I want you to see is that this passage tells us is that marriage is a covenant. You see, more than just being about our personal marriages, this passage is about the relationship of Jesus Christ to his bride, the church. And that relationship is made through covenant. And if we had time, I'd point out how there's actually covenant language that Paul uses, not only in his own writing, but from the Old Testament passage that he quotes. And and the reason this is important, why to see that Paul's reminding us that marriage is a covenant, is because a marriage is a promise of actions, not feelings. And I I think this is so important. See, a covenant binds two people together who promise that they will treat each other in specific ways, whether they feel like it or not. You cannot promise when you get married that you will always feel a certain way about someone else. You'll have good days, you'll have bad days, and you know what? That's totally okay because that's how life goes. But know this, emotions are such a flimsy foundation for any relationship. 
in a marriage covenant, you are promising yourself to another person to act, to be faithful, to honor, to serve, to cherish, to respect, to be tender, to care for, no matter what, no matter whether you feel like doing those things or not. And the reason I say this is because this is how Jesus treats us, church. Jesus cares for us, loves us, treats us in faithfulness and kindness and tenderness, always whether we deserve it or not. You see, this points to how Jesus treats his bride as a spouse. And it's a reminder that in your marriage, you won't always have feelings of love. But you can always act out the promises you made to the other person. And and the beautiful thing about that is if you do that, if you act in the ways that you've promised regardless of how you feel, often feelings follow both your own and your spouse's. Here's the second thing I want to mention to you. Not only does this passage teach that marriage is a covenant, it teaches that marriage sanctifies us. That's just a fancy word for saying marriage makes us better. You see this in the section that's directed towards husbands. Christ loved the church, gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Why did Jesus die? He died not only to save us, he died to change us. And a marriage reflects and continues the overall work of Jesus Christ in our lives. You see, your spouse comes into your life, uh, Lord knows, not to be your Savior. We can't save ourselves and we can't save anyone else. Your spouse can't save you like Christ can, but your spouse does come into your life to help you become who you are meant to be. And a practical application of that is you should expect in marriage because of this that it will be bumpy at times and that you will also experience conflict because often to make someone better, you're rounding off rough edges. That's not always an easy thing. That's not always a pleasant thing. So in a marriage, expect there to be conflict. Expect bumpiness. You are not perfect. Neither is your spouse. But particularly, remember, you are not perfect. But you are called to make each other better. And this applies in all kinds of ways in life. Let me just give you a couple. I mean, it applies spiritually, but it applies more than just spiritually. You know, my wife is my best sermon critic. And you guys honestly should thank her for her work in what she does. This is a behind-the-scenes ministry that she carries on almost weekly, you know, where she you know, she is the best person to help me be a better communicator. You know what? If I want encouragement, I call my mommy. She listens. Hi, mom. She's listening, I guarantee you, later this week. And she will say, oh, it was great, son, no matter what. But if I want constructive feedback that will help me grow and be better, who do I turn to? I turn to my wife because she'll be honest with me. And the funny thing is at times she gives me feedback without my even asking for it. You know, and, and, and sometimes it gets bumpy. Sometimes there's conflict in that. My wife helps me grow more than anyone else because that's what she's supposed to do in the relationship. You know, today I can say I'm a little less arrogant. I'm a little less selfish because of my wife. 
As I mentioned last week, I drink a little less today. I'm a little more present with my family when I'm home with them. And it's all thanks to the way that my wife makes me better in what she does. That's part of marriage is you're supposed to help each other grow and become who you're meant to be because marriage is an intense crucible for sanctification or helping us grow up. Okay, the third thing I want you to see that can be overlooked in this passage is that marriage always points to something far greater than itself. In the second part of verse 32, Paul says, I'm talking about Christ and the church. And, and he's been talking about Christ and the church throughout this whole thing, in addition to talking specifically to husbands and wives. And what Paul's saying is that there's a day that's coming, and I want you to remember this. Your marriage is meant to remind you, and as you look around at other marriages around you, Christians, remember there's an ultimate marriage that's coming. You see, marriage points to the anticipated joy of falling into the Lord's arms, where all tears are wiped away, where all sin is done away with, where everything wrong becomes right. That's a marriage that we are promised that's to come, where we'll be reunited with our loved ones who've gone before us. Marriages are meant to point us and remind us that there's something greater. We have hope, and this applies to everyone married or single, never married or divorced. And there's a couple of, I think, obvious applications there. You know, if you're single this morning because you've never been married and you really want to be married, what this point reminds you of from the text is don't want it too much. Sometimes young people compromise all their standards because they just want to get married, and I'm scared I may never And what this passage reminds us of is don't want it so much because you have a marriage coming. Every person in this room in Christ Jesus will be married to Him. And there's going to be a great party and banquet and celebration. And it's the day that we will fall into His arms and be filled with joy. So if you're single this morning or you're mourning the loss of a loved one, remember there's something greater coming for you. And if you're here this morning and you have a really bumpy marriage, uh, you would say maybe it's not just bumpy, it's actually filled with strife. What that also reminds you is that don't give up too easily. People want to, Christians throw in the towel way too quickly. And I can't tell you all the times that I hear fake excuse after fake excuse on why I need to throw in the towel because people are making rationalizations. And if Christians would regularly remember the hope to which we're called and the sure promise of what's to come, the ultimate wedding, it can empower you to press on and not give up too easily. Let Christ's faithfulness to you empower you to be faithful. Now, I mention that because those are three things I think that always typically get skipped over as people go through this passage, but I believe they are incredibly important. So, let's get to husbands and wives, because that's why you came, right? And as we do, there's an important principle for every single one of us, husband or wife, and it's this. We are called to own our own text. 
what you're going to be tempted, if you're married this morning, you're going to be really tempted to look at your spouse's text. Don't do that. Husbands, don't look at what is said to your wives. Look at what's said to you. Wives, don't look at what's said to your husbands. Look at what's said to you. We need to own our own text in this. Each side can make the other side's responsibility a whole lot easier and the marriage work a whole lot better if you will simply own your own text in this. I read of a couple that was married, been married 60 years, and there was a party thrown because 60 years is a long time, doesn't occur often. And people were asking the couple, what's the secret to your success? And the husband got up and he answered the question this way. He said, well, when my wife and I were married, we made an agreement that I would make all the major decisions and she would make all the minor decisions. At which point the wife interjected, and you know what? We've never had to make a major decision in 60 years of marriage. (laughs) Now I say that because I'm not saying it's wrong. And I'm not going to spell it out for you, and if you can't figure it out as we get through all of this, uh, I'll explain it to you. I'm not saying saying that she was doing something wrong by saying that. There's actually something quite interesting there. So, let's get into the passage itself. We'll start with wives. I was tempted to start with husbands. We're just going to go in order. We're going to start with wives. Verses 22 to 24, God's Word says this, "'Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife.'" As Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Okay, I'll unpack this a little bit. Bottom line, what is this saying? It's pretty obvious. Wives are given a responsibility to submit. And I will tell you, so much energy is expended to avoid this conclusion. And a big argument... I don't have time to go into all the arguments, but people do incredible gymnastics to try and explain this text away. Let me hit the one that is most common among evangelicals, which is this. Well, if you look at verse 21, it says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And you know what? It does. So right before wives submit to your husbands, to your own husbands, it says, submit to one another. And so people use that to explain, well, since all Christians are called to submit to all Christians, you can basically ignore what Paul says to wives here, right? No. That's a false reading of the text. And here's why. The verb submit never, ever is used to talk about mutual submission. Even in verse 21, the one another, it can or cannot mean one another truly. But submit never is used for mutual, complete submission. I'll explain this more. Verse 21 ends one really long sentence in the Greek that started with verse 15. So if you're looking at your Bible, verse 15 to verse 21 is one long sentence talking about how the Christian life requires being filled with Holy Spirit. You remember that from last week if you were here. And if you're filled with Holy Spirit, then you're going to go around acting in certain ways. You're going to speak to other Christians in certain ways. You're going to sing songs that just bubble up from your heart. You're going to be filled with joy. You're going to constantly be giving thanks. All of that requires the filling of Holy Spirit. 
But what's also necessary by filling of Holy Spirit is the enablement to submit in ways that God calls Christians to submit in. And what he does, what Paul does in this passage, the word submit isn't even in verse 22, just so you know. I don't want to get too technical here. I had to do a lot of work in the Greek this week. The word submit is only in verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then Paul goes like this, wives to husbands. And then he uses two more examples, children to parents, slaves to masters. Now, let's not get derailed on the slaves to masters thing. Brent's going to cover that next week. And I just want to remind you, when the Bible ever mentions slavery, it's never the atrocity that happened in America or in Great Britain centuries ago. And it's not the heinous acts that go on today because there's a modern slave trade that's happening. Slavery in the Roman Empire was something completely different. It was you put yourself into it voluntarily, typically. Brent can explain all that next week. But what Paul does, the point is this. When Paul says, submit to one another, what he does now is says, and now here's three ways I call you to do that. In these categorical manners, wives to husbands, children to parents, slaves to masters. Paul is not saying all Christians, all times, everywhere are called to submit to one another. If that's the case, then fathers, you should be submitting to your children okay? That's not what he's saying, because the word submit never says it's just both ways. There's too much Greek to get into to talk about that further. If it's perfectly reciprocal, that means that somebody who's been a Christian forever and dealing with a passage of Scripture needs to submit to a brand new Christian who doesn't have any experience with it, and okay, I'll submit, uh, let your interpretation override mine, that's not what Paul's calling for either in this passage. And, and Paul further shows that by his deliberate use of the word head. And now this one gets into all kinds of other gymnastics. What does head mean? Wives, let your husband be your head. Well, you've probably heard all sorts of things. Bottom line, what it gets to in this passage, in this context, is leadership leadership. And then when Paul says, in everything, what that means is that he is calling on wives to cultivate a pattern of living where my general attitude and action towards my husband will be to let him lead. Now, I say that, and you're saying, but, 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 let me, ex- let me deal with that. Let me, let me tell you some of the things that submission does not mean. This is not about women in leadership in the church, okay? So don't, don't confuse this passage talking about what women can or cannot do in the church or in society in general. It's not talking about that at all. This is, the context is Christian marriage. It's not calling for all women to be submissive to all men. I remember I had to tell a man in Florida who tried to give my wife a word of knowledge, you better shut up, buddy, because she is not called to submit to you in any way whatsoever. She's my wife. Submission, hear this, is never subjugation. 
It is never silently enduring some kind of abuse or passively watching and or participating in your husband's own sinfulness, wives. God is not the author of injustice. This also offers no licensed men for some twit to come along and take advantage of their wife. Submission does not mean a wife is supposed to be quiet about things that bother her in the marriage. I already told you, we're supposed to make each other better. A wife's job is to bring things up, as a husband's job is. Submission does not deny the equality of each sex. Hear that. This is not saying in any way women are lesser than men or inferior in some way. This also does not do away with the fact that we are all one in Christ Jesus or that we are to treat others better than ourselves. That all still applies. It does not negate the reciprocity of rights. And very importantly, submission is not obedience. Hear me in that. Children are told to obey their parents. A wife is not called to obey her husband. You see, submission is different than obedience. What the Bible calls for is respect. Allowing your husband to lead regularly. And it's going to show itself in actions. You know, and here are my challenges to you women. Do you manipulate to get your way around your husband's leadership? That's not being submissive. Do you nag to get your way? Paul would say that's not falling under this category. When you get into the health club or in the office place or whatever, do you find someone else to constantly run your husband down and talk about what a buffoon he is? Oh, yeah, he sure is. That's not living in submission. Now, remember, own your own text. Husbands, you're about to get it. Yeah, I really mean that. So, wives, what you're called to by Paul in this passage is to let your husband lead. Now, I'll say something towards the end. Husbands, you deal with this in verses 25 to 33. And here's the first thing I want you to notice, husbands. Paul has three times as much to say to you as he does your wife. You think we're thick-headed? You think we've got a problem? Yeah. So Paul spends three times as much energy and in writing to the husband as he does to the wife. And the first thing it says is that the man must never exercise headship to please himself. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That means husbands are never, and yes, I'm using the never word, husbands are never to do anything to please self. A husband is always to put the needs and desires of his wife before his own needs and desires. Always. So let's take a silly illustration. Your wife wants a minivan. You want an SUV. What's a husband to do? You get the stinking minivan. Why? Because you submit your desires to her desire. Always. Paul doesn't 
limit that. You don't sit there and say, well, dear, remember Ephesians 5, I'm the head and I'm the leader. So we get the many. No! No, husbands, if you're owning your text, you can talk. I'm not saying you don't talk about it. But I am saying, husbands, if you're going to live this out, you are going to submit yourself to your wife in this regard by seeking to do what pleases her to lay down your life, to give yourself up for your wife just as Jesus did for the church. So you may be saying, well, okay, if I'm supposed to always try to put my wife's desires ahead of my own, what in the world does headship mean? Here's what I think it means. A husband will only overrule his wife when the two of you absolutely cannot agree And when, husband, you truly believe that her desire would be harmful to her or harmful to your marriage. I think that's harmful to her or harmful to the marriage. I think that's the only case. Harmful to your family, to your kids. That's the only time I believe that headship comes into overruling. And if you ever have to do that, you do so humbly. You see, husbands, we exercise leadership the same way Jesus did, which is putting the good of his bride first. And here's some categories for you, men. This impacts your faithfulness. This impacts the use of your time, your interest, your priorities, and your preferences. And so let me ask you some very uh, pertinent questions. How have you specifically sacrificed yourself in these ways for your wife? With your time, with your interest, with your preferences, with your priorities. How have you specifically sacrificed yourself for your wife in these ways? Do you keep the kids several nights a week so your wife can go out and finish her degree? Husbands, you have no right to Saturday and Sunday football. Yeah, I know, it's meddling. You have no right to it. You're not called to be Jabba the Hutt two days out of the week where you sit there and watch a tube and cheer on your favorite team as you ignore your spouse and ignore your kids. If you're single, go for it, whatever. But husbands, on a Saturday and a Sunday, you are called to lay, to die to your preferences for your wife's. That's living like Jesus. And so let me ask you, to what degree did Jesus limit his self-sacrifice for you? In no way whatsoever. You see, true love, husband to wife, will most look like a crucifixion every single day where husbands, you literally are dying to self for your bride. And you don't just do it to do it. It it goes on to tell us the sacrificing is for her good. I already said you can't be her savior, but it goes on to say, why, why do you give yourself up? 
Christ did it to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. The church is the body of Christ. Christ the head laid down his life to purify and to make his bride like him. Husbands, you are called to do self-sacrificing denial for the good of your wife. And this can look like all kinds of things. You know, do you pray with or for your wife at least? Do you ever talk about Scripture in the home? I'm not saying you get do some legalistic thing, but, but, do you, but do you do things that are for the good of the family spiritually? Here's another way. Do you directly foster her interest and talents? All of our wives are amazing women who have gifts and abilities and interests. What are you doing to sacrifice yourself so that she can pursue her interest, her talents, her abilities? What do you do to deny yourself so that she can fill her tanks up? You see, husbands, what we are called to is to be utterly interested in our wives' well-being. What sacrifice has your love displayed even this past week to that end? You see, when a husband and wife are one, the husband's self-interest is the couple's self-interest. And if you want to be a leader, men, then here's what that means. You'll lead like Jesus by serving. If you want a full union with your wife, seek her interest. Every marriage is to be a model of the love of Jesus for the church. Men, love your wife just as Christ loved the church and displayed that in complete and utter self-sacrifice. Now notice this. There are no cultural details given to these principles because what the Bible does is he gives us principles that are for all times, all cultures, all Christians, wherever they live, everywhere. It's form to a marriage relationship with a whole lot of freedom in it. And so here's what you're called to do, husbands and wives. Even this week, work out the specific details of how this plays out in your marriage. You see, this does not say who does what in the relationship. Like, well, if the man's the head, he better run the checkbook. No, that's a cultural thing. Some men shouldn't get near the stinking checkbook. They're inept, and the wife should be doing that. This is not saying the wives should take care of the house while the husbands do whatever. This is not saying the husband works while the wife stays home. All of that is cultural baggage that we import into this. Maybe, husband, you should let your wife be the primary worker while you take care of the kids. You see, it doesn't get into specifics. And what it also does is it, the Bible takes gender very seriously. And what it calls us to is that, you know, husband and wife, uniquely in every marriage, they're going to bring in personality, they're going to bring in gifts and abilities, and so the details are how you work all that out. And how Ann and I work that out may look completely different from how you and your spouse work that out. 
What works well for us may be a disaster for you. Paul gives form and yet freedom. Now here's why Paul has done all of this. And I need to wrap up. What often is overlooked too in this passage, Paul and the Bible take gender seriously. They also take God's Word very seriously. And what he's seeking to do in this passage is to say, Christians, I'm calling you to live in reverse to the curse that was laid upon all mankind back in Genesis 3. Back there, you know, if you think about the curse, women, you think, well, okay, I have labor, I have pain and childbirth, all right? But then it goes on and says, but your desire will be for your husband. And what that gets at, what that means, isn't just that you're going to love your husband more than God or something like that. What it means is that the curse is the wife is going to try to dominate her husband. And then it goes on and says, and your husband will try to rule over you, which means that he will try to rule selfishly over you. You see, the curse is being addressed here. Both Husbands and wives have things that need to be reversed from the curse in Genesis. That's why there's an emphasis on submission to wives, and that's why there's an emphasis on self-sacrifice to husbands. When sin entered the world, it ruined the harmony of marriage, not by bringing headship and submission into existence, but by twisting man's humble, loving servant leadership into hostile domination or lazy indifference and twisting woman's intelligent, willing submission into manipulative compliance or defiant subordination. Sin didn't create headship and submission. It ruined them. And what Paul is teaching in Ephesians 5 is for in Christ, by power of Holy Spirit, reverse the curse that has been laid upon humanity. To do that, you must be empowered by Holy Spirit. And men and women, if we do that, a watching world will see the beauty of our Savior who is the perfect spouse. You know, there's no conditions in the sense of, well, I'll I'll do my part if she does her part, or I'll do my part if he does his part. We didn't do our part for Jesus. You know that, church. What do we do? We spit in his face. We ran the opposite way. We ran as far and hard and as fast as we could away from him. What did he do? He came after us. And the church became his bride, not by being dragged unwillingly by force, but we became his bride because he laid down his life in sacrifice and love for us. And so whether you're single, married, widowed, divorced, remember, you have someone who loves you more than you could ever imagine. And what we're called to is remember that all of us have a wedding day that's coming. And you know what? With all the junk going on in the world, we sang the song It Is Well earlier, that's the day, the great wedding feast of the Lamb, when it truly will all be well. Bride, make yourself ready and await the glorious consummation. Lord Jesus, thank you for being the perfect spouse, for doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. Lord, I pray that you would allow us to walk in humility, 
in surrender to you, to your word. And Lord, that our marriages would look a little bit more like the great marriage. Lord, we can't do this in our own power. We want to make excuses far too easily. We want to justify self. Help us, Lord. Help us remember that at the cross, you laid it all down to make us yours. Help us to do that for each other. In your name we pray. Amen.